Hello, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. I am Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host, Sean Cheatham. And today we have a special guest with us today, uh, Pastor Jake Stone of New Testament Baptist Church in Biloxi, Mississippi. Um, is a Reformed Baptist Church down there in Mississippi, and we're just going to be discussing our topic in the confession uh, today. Uh, thank you for being with us today, Pastor Jake. We appreciate your time. Great to be with y'all. Glad to be here. Now tell us a little, about, a little bit about your uh, background as a pastor and some of the background of New Testament Baptist Church. Well, I've been in pastoral ministry for 11 years now. Um, I started when I was three months shy of turning 20. So it's definitely been an interesting journey and experience for me. Uh, I grew up in a more fundamentalist, King James-only, landmark Baptist context. And New Testament is actually the church that I grew up in. So it is my home oh, church. Okay. And so... Um, so we were not in any way organized as a Reformed Baptist church, um, but the Lord in his grace and his mercy, I pastored a church on the Mississippi Gulf Coast for two years and then came to New Testament in a full-time capacity in August of 2011. Really looking back now, it was what you would call a church revitalization project. It was also in many ways a replanting of the church and from August of 2011 to now, the Lord has been very kind and gracious to us, not just in uh, adding to our numbers, but really bringing us more and more into conformity with his word. Through that period, uh, I came to understand what expository preaching was. Uh, we moved away from the King James onlyism that we had known and also came to the doctrines of grace. And that really then opened up uh, things like nine marks what's a healthy church uh the mm -hmm. founders ministry historic yeah. baptist theology and all of that kind of fueled into uh discovering that the 1689 the second london baptist confession and what it means to be a confessional church so uh at new testament for example the 1689 is the confessional standard for those who are elders and then we use the new hampshire confession which is more of a, a summary or an abstract for membership. So the Lord's been very gracious to us in, in the journey. Um, it's had its ups and it's had its downs. It's had its challenges. Um, but I'm so thankful for how God has worked in the life of the church and to see over the coming up now nine years since we began that journey, thinking about where we were then, where we are today, it is all a testimony of his sovereign grace. Oh, that's great. That's great. That That's very similar to actually kind of where our Reformed Baptist Church came. You kind of come out of that fundamentalist um, Arminian background and moving towards Reformed theology pretty quickly, pretty quickly. And it, and it tends to take off like wildfire within the church. But that's that's great. Um, so, Sean, if you want to go ahead and introduce our topic today, what we'll be uh, discussing with Pastor Jake. Yeah, so today we'll actually be discussing two chapters of the uh, London Baptist Confession of Faith, the second London Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, because they're, they're related in uh, Reformed Baptist theology, and that's chapter 26 of the church and chapter 29 of baptism. Uh, we're combining these because basically our understanding of who is supposed to be a part of the church, who is supposed to be part of the new covenant, leads us to a Baptistic uh, understanding. 
this is uh, where we differ from our uh, Presbyterian brethren the most. For the most part, you could go into an Orthodox Presbyterian church and you really wouldn't notice a very much of a lot of difference between uh, them and a Reformed Baptist church. But these two chapters are the, the core of the major difference between us and our church polity and, um, and uh, who we think the subject of baptism is. So uh, getting into uh, the questions uh, we're gonna discuss, the first question is, what is the church? Is it important and why? Well, let me go ahead and say, first of all, that I think you two are very ambitious in trying to cover both of these subjects <laughs> in the amount of time. And um, uh, just, to let it, just, just to let everybody know, for example, when they sent me the outline for the questions, the last one is, why is infant baptism unbiblical, <laughs> and why do the writers of the confession see this as an important topic to address? So I, I guess I'm to answer that in three minutes, um, <laughs> just, just, just teasing a little bit. So I, what I want to do, um, you know, good, good pastor theologians realize that we're not novel and trying to create something new. So we're retrieving that which has gone before us, and fontes. of course— Yes, and explaining those concepts to, you know, the modern contemporary audience. So when you're talking about the church and baptism in the confessional standards, the best work to go to, um, and so I pulled it out, is Edification and Beauty, which yes. is the practical ecclesiology of the English particular Baptist, 1675-1705, written by James Renahan. Yep. And so I kind of went back through, and so what is the church? And he gives these citations from some of the early leaders of what their answers were. So uh, according to Benjamin Keach, Keach said, quote, in the universal church are many particular congregations or communities of Christians. Uh, Hendrick Knowles, in an exposition of Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 5, talks about the church of God on earth is like Jerusalem. Churches are the daughters. Jerusalem is the city of the great king, the throne of God, a free city honored with many privileges, the daughters are double in nature, all the churches are the saints who share in a common name, nature and power, all the saints in every church of Christ, the whole is the mother and the parts are the daughters. So there's that understanding as the confession relates in chapter 26, paragraphs one through four of the universal church, the elect, the redeemed of all the ages, uh, uh, Sam Waldron does a good job in the exposition of the 1689 of talking about how we as Baptists understand the role of Israel and the church, how Israel is a, is a type, it is a picture, but Israel is not the church right. in the Old Testament in the same way we think of the New Testament church. So there are significant differences, but there are some similarities as well. One thing that's fascinating and especially for somebody like me who comes out of a landmark background, uh, chapters one through, uh, chapter 26, paragraphs one through four, really show that the Baptists of the 17th century did not hold to what became landmarkism in America in the 19th century. They understood a concept of a universal church. They used term like Catholic, lowercase c. Mm -hmm. um, they even considered now, and I, I think we would do well to retrieve the uh, term that Keach would use is that we would recognize, you know, Presbyterian or, or Congregationalist congregations as true churches, but they are irregular. 
Baptists are regular in that we are fully regulated by scripture and how we do things, but we still can see Presbyterians and, and Congregationalists as churches. We're not going so far as saying, no, if it's not Baptist, it's not a church. So there's that healthy understanding of the universal church, but also then of the local church, visible congregations of covenant communities. So uh, Renahan cites Hercules Collins, who is drawing from John Owen. And here's an important thing. Baptist ecclesiology is in itself rooted in the Congregationalist movement of the separatist Puritans. So they definitely are drawing from men like John Owen and Thomas Goodwin. In fact, the chapter in the Second London Baptist Confession on the church is drawn from the Savoy document paragraphs one through four, and then Savoy wrote a separate document on ecclesiology, and the Baptists take a lot of that document and then put it in the confession. So that is why the chapter on the church is, is really one of the most unique chapters in the Second London compared to Westminster and Savoy. But Collins and these men saw themselves in that Congregationalist uh, heritage because in a work that Collins does on the church, he just draws from John Owen. Question, what is an instituted church of the gospel? Answer, a society of persons called out of the world or their naturally worldly state by the administration of the word and spirit into the obedience of faith or the knowledge of the worship of God in Christ, joined together in a holy bond or by special agreement for the exercise of the communion of saints and due observation of all the ordinances of the gospel. So that's Collins. Then you've got Benjamin Keach, who writes a great work entitled The Glory of a True Church and Its Discipline Displayed. He says, quote, a, gospel, a church of Christ according to the gospel institutions of the New Testament is a congregation of godly Christians who, as a stated assembly, being first baptized upon the profession of faith, do by mutual agreement and consent give themselves up to the Lord and one to another according to the will of God and do ordinarily meet together in one place, so no multi-sites and multi-campuses here, for the public <laughs> service and worship of God among whom the word of God and sacraments are duly administered according to Christ's institution. And lastly, uh, Hansard Knowles says, in, in similar language, a true, visible, constituted church of Christ under the gospel is a congregation of saints called out of the world, separated from idolaters and idol temples, from the unbelieving Jews and their synagogues and all legal observations of holy days, Sabbath days, and mosaical rites, ceremonies and shadows, and assembled together in one place, there it is again, on the Lord's day, the first day of the week, to worship God visibly by the spirit and in truth and the holy ordinances of God according to the faith and order of the gospel. So there you see that the Baptists had a firm understanding that you have a universal church of all the redeemed and the elect, but then a local church is a covenant body where members have come together. They have been baptized by immersion in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They covenant together in membership. The word is ministered to them. They observe the sacraments together. They worship together in a certain place on the Lord's day. And that worship and the elements of that worship are guided by the scripture. And 
I, I'll add this. I know this is not really part of what we're getting into, but I would add this note that in chapter 26 of the confession, you've got a strong statement that is made in paragraphs 14 and 15 about the communion of churches. And James mm -hmm. Renahan, uh, Robert Oliver, and other Baptist historians have argued forcefully and convincingly, I would say, that for those 17th century Baptists, it would have been totally unthinkable for someone to say, I'm a Christian, but not a member of a local church. It would have also been unthinkable for them to say that a local church is not a part of a formal association or communion of churches. And we desperately need to recover the full ecclesiology of the Baptists, not just in a local church, but also I would argue in an associational context because that mutual accountability, that working together uh, is so critical. And I think Baptists, while we rightly champion the autonomy of the local church, today a lot of Baptists use that terminology in a way that I would say would be alien to how 17th century Baptists understood the autonomy of a church, that it wasn't just free and loose, that there was to be some accountability in an associational context. Yeah, and that's that's very interesting that you bring that up. And that, that I think that's in stark contrast to the Presbyterian model, even in the 17th century, where you had the church-state relationship. The, the emphasis on a local church just wasn't there. And I think that's why you see such a difference in this chapter than you do from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which only has six paragraphs on the nature of the church, um, it, while the LBCF has 15. Or, uh, 15. And, you know, it just shows this emphasis that they had on ensuring that the church was right. Church membership was important, especially if you don't have an established church um, like they did with the, the Presbyterian or the Congregationalist model, where this, the state was involved in the church. Um, your membership had to be, to, to be clearly shown. It had to be enforced in some way. And they saw, I mean, they just saw it as, as purely biblical. So, yeah, it, it's, very, it's very important that we bring out those historical distinctives. And I think that's part of the reason the church, uh, especially in the Baptist side, is where it is today. There's this loss of the importance of church history and recovering uh, where we came from. Yeah, and, and, and you said one thing that's very important is that in the Congregationalist movement, there is such a, an emphasis on the purity of the church. The independents, men like Owen and, and Goodwin, and then over in the colonies like uh, John Cotton, um, were, were right in emphasizing that. But Baptists said, and I know we'll get to this in a, in a little bit with baptism, but that's where they continue that line and that importance of the purity of the church. And, and that's going to show the significant problems that you've got with infant baptism and saying, you know, all these people are members of the church, right. um, yep. whether they're believers or not, or they can come and, and so forth. And, and I think that we have, I don't think there's any group in Protestantism that was more dis made distinct by their ecclesiology than Baptists. Hmm. And yet I would argue today, we have many people who would claim the name Baptist who don't care about that yeah. distinction. And I, and I would say, um, I, last year, Mark Dever came to Jackson, Mississippi at a conference, and he said that Baptists believed in the 17th century that the Bible had definitive things to say about the church. Mm. And he said, 
and I think they, the Bible still has definitive things to say <laughs> about the church. Uh, that's what it means to be a Baptist. These men went to prison. Some of them died in prison uh, for the very reasons that they held and thought that ecclesiology mattered that much. They were willing to go to jail. And I think we do a disservice when we kind of shrug our shoulders and, and claim that name and yet don't really care much. We have to be careful. I do think that there can be a tendency in Baptist history, as seen by, by landmarkism, to be too sectarian. We can go to an extreme there. Mm. But I think in our current climate today, that's not really the challenge we face right now. It is too much of really missing what those distinctives were, like regenerate church membership. Um, and all the th and, and the regular principle of worship, those mm -hmm. things were at the heart of Baptist ecclesiology. If I can say one more thing about this, this subject is this, is that Baptist ecclesiology was fueled and anchored by the regulative principle. And if you reject mm. the regulative principle, that's why a lot of Baptist ecclesiology looks as funky and operates as funky as it does today. Because when you throw the regulative principle out, an ecclesiology that is driven by that is just not, it's, you've got a mess and it's not going to work. Yeah, exactly. That is, that hits the, uh, the nail on the head right there. Uh, so moving on to the, the second question, we've already begun to touch on this a little bit, but just to get into it a little bit more fully, um, who are the members of the church supposed to be? Well, the members of the church are, first of all, they are supposed to be believers. Um, and, and, and Sam Waldron does a really good job in his exposition of the 1689, where he talks about how Baptists saw discipleship, baptism, and the church members and church membership all connected together in the Great Commission that is given in Matthew chapter 28. So Waldron makes his comment. He said, quote, discipleship therefore demands baptism, church membership, and submission to the elders and teachers of the church. Church membership presupposes and demands discipleship manifesting itself in obedience to the Lord. Obedience manifested specifically in the acts of baptism and submission to the word in the teaching ministry of the church. And, and so that is why a person to be a member of the local church must be a believer. I would say they need to be examined. Um, now, I think that's a church by church case of, as far as what that looks like and how long that lasts. But I do think we have a right to, to question. Um, Renahan talks about in his book, the practice um, in the 17th century. And I remember reading it for the first time and thinking just how that would cause people's minds to explode today that if somebody wanted to join your church, there were people appointed by that church who went and talked to people that you worked with, your family, to kind of know who you were. Um, that was part of their interview process. That's how serious they took those who are coming into the congregation. So it wasn't just that a person, you know, walked the aisle on Sunday morning and said, I want to join the church. And after they said that, church voted them in and was welcoming them. You know, there was a process that they went through. And so, that's where having good instruction, even a form of catechizing, takes a part. And then submitting to the church, to the elders, as they teach the word and the ministry of the word. So this was a very important thing. And then, you know, discipline, accountability, that's all a part of being a member as well. We're not, you know, let's say we have 50 members of a local church. We're not 50 separate islands. 
doing our mm -hmm. own thing. We are together on one island as 50 people united and joined together. And that's why church covenants, you know, I grew up in the context where every church in the South had on the wall a church covenant, and it was there as an ornament, as a decoration, because it, nobody <laughs> referred to it. It didn't mean anything. Now, if you tried to take it down, that would have caused, you know, World War III in that place. <laughs> but, but it had no binding, you know, power or authority in, um, in the life of the church. But the practice of Baptism in the 17th century was signing church covenants. That's still going on when William Carey pastors in England. Um, the second church he pastored there, they actually disbanded because there was so much unhealthiness spiritually in that church. And they reconstituted around a new covenant. And Carey said, if you can't sign it, you're not a member. Hmm. And, and so that was continued. Uh, Mark Dever, when I went to a weekender at his church, he, he showed you shows on the back wall when Capitol Hill first constituted. All the members signed the covenant, and that's something that we do at New Testament as well. That was historic practice of Baptists to show we take this seriously. It's one thing to verbally affirm something, but it is a lot more meaningful when you actually put your signature and, and sign that you are agreeing to something. And so we need a recovery of covenant membership hmm. as Baptist churches and what that means, what, what commitment we have given not only to Christ, but to one another as well. Yeah, that's very important because we don't want people in the church who have no understanding of the gospel. You know, they might right. say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I, I was baptized, but they can't tell you, you know, how in the world they, uh, they were saved. I know one of the, for our church in particular, one of the things that the elders look at, they, one of the questions that they ask, they'll say, you know, can you tell me the gospel in 60 seconds or less? You know, something like that to, to make sure people understand what it is that they're professing and to ensure that they really have believed it and embraced it um, and ensuring, uh, yeah, ensuring that they have actually believed it and repented of their sins. So, yeah, it's very important. And then the church covenant aspect, that, that is very crucial because um, I, I think church membership, even maybe in, in reform circles too, is, is very flippant. You know, you're not going to tell me what to do. You're not going to tell me I can't, you know, do what I want on Sunday on the Lord's Day. Um, you know, that there's this, there's this, this seems to be this lackadaisical attitude towards committing to a church. It's, it's more of a visible membership rather than um, actually heartily and biblically committing yourself to it. And I think this also goes to the heart of, you know, paragraph two in chapter 26, where it specifically talks about those who profess faith in Christ are those who are to be joined to a local church or are actually members of the visible church, as opposed to um, the addition that the Westminster adds with regards to children in chapter 25. Um, you know, it, children generally are not going to, to understand or grasp these things, obviously, unless God opens their minds. And so to identify them with the visible church is really an error because we have to make sure that those who are joining the church understand the sacrifice that, uh, that discipleship requires they understand that they are giving their lives completely to Christ. And this isn't just some function they're joining um, because mom and dad are doing it. You know, I think, and I think these issues, the, the early particular Baptists were trying to address to, to make sure that those who were in the church actually believed, or at least strongly professed to believe um, the gospel. Yeah, I, I would, I would agree. And um 
I, I think that that is a part of, that's part of our responsibility as, as churches and as elders. I mean, we, we're going to give an account for the Lord, for the flock. Yeah. And so we, we need mm-hmm. to know who the flock is. And we definitely, you know, there's, there's always the fight in life, I think life, theology, church practice, et cetera, to go to one end of a spectrum or another. And yep. we've got to be careful. We don't want to go to the authoritarian side either and act like that we're little kings and popes. And, um, you know, we, we speak it and you better do it. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, we're also, we're not, you know, our responsibility in a church is more than just preaching on the Lord's end. That's a big part of it. Mm. And a huge component, but there's a lot more to pastoring than, than just that. It also, if you take a view that basically unregenerate people can be a member of a church, it really flies in the face of church discipline passages like Matthew 18. Um, it's like, well, they, they weren't a Christian. How could you, how could you put them out of the church for, for sinning? What were you expecting sort of deal? No, it's, it's a, it's very much in the New Testament that there's an expectation that people are going to be committed to living holy lives within the local church context. And that um, you will be, you know, if you claim the name of Christ, you are going, it's yeah. assumed by Paul that you're going to be part of a local church. To yes. be outside of the local church is to be in the devil's playground. You know, when, when you discipline someone, you put them outside of the church, they are now handed over to Satan. You yes. know, the, the outside of the church is the world. That's the devil's playground. Inside the church is, is security and safety for believers. So um, church membership is vital. That's vital. Yes. All right. So moving on to our uh, next question. Uh, who is entrusted with teaching and preaching primarily? So the, the government or the structure that the Second London Baptist Confession shows to us is, uh, speaks of two offices of elders or pastors or overseers, whichever term you want to use, and then deacons. And the elders are the ones who are committed to the public preaching and teaching of the word. Um, Mm -hmm. Renahan gives this summary from Nehemiah Cox in an ordination sermon that Cox preached. He said the public duties of elders are prayer, which was in the leading of worship, preaching, and the exercise of discipline and the private duties as visiting the flock, encouraging, exhorting, and rebuking them. So there's a, and there's a very important aspect, not only of these elders, these men who are identified by the church, they are set aside, they are installed. Um, You can use the term ordained. Of course, that's a loaded term and that could be a whole nother episode on its own about Baptist and ordination. (laughs) Um, But, there was a sense that these are people who are marked out and, you know, Baptists were congregationalists. So the church is the ultimate and final authority, but there is a very important role that the elders have in guiding and shepherding and counseling and teaching the flock. Now, one interesting example though of a difference between the Baptist model and let's say a Presbyterian model is when Hercules Collins in the 1680s and 1684 was put in prison and it was the time for the church to celebrate the Lord's supper, but he was in prison and his advice and counsel to them was not 
to partake of it with him not there. But the church actually as a whole voted in, to observe it. And um, so they differed there, but they had the final vote on that. And so they observed the Lord's Supper without Collins or pastor being there with them, So, which is kind of interesting. But one thing that I find fascinating that Benjamin Keach does a whole work on was some of the issues that they had in their own day with churches not supporting pastors financially as they should. Mm. And he talked about, for example, that, you know, it's not about that there, there'd be men of, you know, filthy lucre and, and they're just, you know, using their position to get wealthy. But he said churches don't have pastors because they're not supporting and a man can't give himself really to the ministry of the word and prayer to them, which is fascinating. Something else, um, and Renahan spent some time on this, is the notion of gifted brethren. Now, in most Baptist circles today, people are either ordained or they're licensed. We use that terminology. A licensed preacher was what we would call was a gifted brother at that time. And that was the, were laymen in the church who were identified as having an ability to teach the word, but not, they had not been set aside as elders, but they could be allowed to preach. But what's fascinating is that in Baptist life, so let's, so let's today, for example, now in the typical Baptist church, let's say that brother Ralph, for example, says, you know what? I believe that I have the gift to preach and I'm just going to go to the orphanage or to the nursing home and I'm going to preach the word to them. But he does not consult with the elders of his church. He does not even talk to the church at all. The church does not recognize him. He just goes on his own. That concept was totally foreign to how Baptists operated in the 17th century. For example, Renan gives an example of a man who thought he had the gift. The church said, you don't. We don't think you do. But he went out on his own still and preached and actually disciplined him for that. Mm. Now, thankfully, he did repent and he was restored. Um, but you see that same mindset over 100 years later with William Carey. He, he came from an Anglican background into an independent church and still was, was doing some preaching, but he was not actually a member and John Sutcliffe, who was a particular Baptist, kind of, you know, lovingly rebuked Carey for going around preaching, but not under any kind of authority or guidance or care of a church. And Carey actually ended up joining Sutcliffe's church. Um, and, and so I, I say all that to say we have gotten so caught up, and this is not a political statement when I use this term, but we've gotten so caught up in a libertarian mindset that I kind of can do whatever I want to do mm. if I feel led by the spirit, that it doesn't matter if there's a community and elders around me helping me. Do they discern this? Do they see this? Doesn't mean they're infallible. You may have a gift and they don't see it. That can happen at times. But for the most part, we need people in our lives. So it wasn't a, so preaching and standing behind the pulpit was not some willy nilly free as you want it to be uh, thing among Baptists in the 17th century. And I would just argue, I would just make the statement too, you know, I'm a Calvinistic Baptist, so I stand in the heritage of the particular Baptist, but our, as Timothy George would call them, our cousins, the general Baptists, the Arminians, you know, they were also just as fervent on a lot of these things on ecclesiology too. So Baptists, were, 
even though they had differences on soteriology, both groups were very emphatic about how important the local church membership was and then structure and the preaching and teaching of the word. It was not something that, that was done haphazardly. So like, for example, when I started preaching, on February the 1st, I went before the church and said, I believe the Lord's calling me to preach. February the 8th, I preached my first sermon. And I was preaching every week after that at different churches, and I got called to pastor three months later. Now, I had no business pastoring because I didn't know how to preach then. I didn't even know <laughs> what expository preaching was. I didn't even know what preaching was in general. But, but that was just how things were. It's just we got a pulpit. We got a need. We'll just throw you in there. And I think sometimes, you know, we don't lovingly disciple and shepherd and, and mentor and help men and guide them. And that's what this is about. It is about raising up and training men within the congregation to teach. We want to be, we want to be raising up elders. That should be what, and, and leaders. So I hope that kind of answered the question there. Um, but it, it was, it was a very serious thing about preaching and teaching in the local church and that there was a process and there were things, um, you know, Renahan makes this statement. He said, public ministry was a very important matter and could not be treated lightly. Those who thought that they could act on their own needed to be brought under the regulating power of the church. Mm -hmm. And again, that's a very healthy, fine balance we need, but we need that desperately today. When so much is happening, um, with men who think the ministry is theirs and mm. they don't see it as a grace and a mercy that God has given to them to be exercised in the local church. Yeah. And I, I think that's in stark contrast to men like George Whitfield, um, who, who yeah. came a little bit later in the 18th century. You know, he, he had a Calvinistic background, but he thought that he was called to preach and just went around preaching. He, and he actually kind of rejected the idea of a local church. That, that was at least putting himself under the headship of the local church and the importance of the local church. Um, you know, and, and he ran with the Methodists, with the, the Wesleyans um, in that regard. But you do see that stark contrast. And part of what the early particular Baptists, especially at the 1689 General Assembly, was to seek funding for pastors to go and establish churches in different areas throughout the country in England. So it, they saw this as, as very important. Um, and pastors should be able to make their living off of, of preaching as much as possible. You know, they, they shouldn't be distracted by, um, by other jobs. Sometimes pastors do have to, to pick up a job. You know, sometimes churches are small, but their primary goal should be to focus solely on preaching and teaching and ministering to God's people. Um, and, and I think even today there, there's an overemphasis on that, maybe to some extent with some of these big churches where there's almost a small corporation made out of these mega churches. You know, they have their own vice presidents, yep. they have their own pastors that do pretty much everything in the church, um, instead of finding, uh, their living based off of focusing on preaching and teaching the word to God's people. And I, and I would add something, too, and, and this was very convicting to me when, when, when I read through the, the Renahan book, is that one of the problems we've had in churches is that, and, and I think it comes, you know, sadly, I think one of the issues that has happened in churches with, with sex abuse and children 
has been because we have created so many different positions in the church that we don't have qualifications for in the Bible. We have qualifications for an elder and for a deacon. But for example, if a church is run by, by committees, okay, where are the qualifications for the committee chairman in the Bible? We don't have those. We, we, have, we have so many created positions within local churches that we don't have biblical guidelines and mandates for. And that's how people who have no business being in any kind of leadership position get put in it and sadly abuse and misuse what's been given to them. So you use the example, the corporation mindset, churches become so complex. You got to have a flow chart. (laughs) They have a flow chart to show how everything works in a local church. I would say maybe we need to step back and see, can we simplify this? Because the ecclesiology model in the New Testament is very simple, very straightforward. Um, And I think we, we, we suffer when we create so many different positions and layers and and groups and subgroups and people get into those places where they shouldn't be they should have no authority should have no power and we don't have any way of regulating and mandating that because we don't have that in the scripture so a lot of those churches don't even have elders in the first place yes yeah that's the yeah usually you've got a group who are who are deacons who are functioning as elders right right And, and, and and again it's just you have you have lots of it's confusion it is a lot of confusion. Yep. It, it, it really is actually insulting to the wisdom of God. God preserved not just once, but twice the qualifications for elders in the New Testament. It's, it's repeated in multiple verses that there should be a plurality of elders in the churches by way of example. To, to then go and say, yeah, that's the New Testament pattern, but we want to do it like this, or we're going to change it like this. You're, you're essentially saying yeah, either that God really hasn't spoken in, the, in his word, or you just don't care. And that's not a place you want to be. Yes. And, and, and I always will be careful. We, we can romanticize the past. And I'm, and I'm not here trying to say that the church in the 17th century and Baptist life were, were perfect. And they were all, you know, little model Zions and, you know, right. That's what we need to be is exactly like them on everything. Um, But I think we need to ask ourselves in the last 100 years, have we benefited or have we suffered from a lot of really unhealthy teaching that has come into the church? You made the statement about plurality of elders. I mean, I grew up in a context where, you know, that, that, you know, I, I actually remember, um, when I was a teenager, so funny little story here. When I was a teenager, we had a pastor, and he had conducted a, a funeral service of a member that he had pastored several years back, and he did it with another minister of another church. And he came back, and he was telling us about this minister, and he said he is a part of this church in town. They have teaching elders. He said, what is that? I've never heard of that before. And it was actually a little Reformed Baptist church, and they had plurality of elders. Well, that minister that he did the service with is actually now my fellow elder at New Testament. In God's providence, a few years back, they united with us. And it's interesting how, you know, God works and connects all those dots years later. But I think about now the burdens that we share, he and I as elders, and how much easier that is for us. Then if I were doing this by myself, 
I know what that's like when I'm the only, was the only pastor. And, and, and I think that's one of the things that's happened and why men have had burnout and so forth is that all of that is, is on them. You've got this board of deacons over here who make all the decisions, but they're not pastors. And so all, so they can easily put all the responsibility on this one man and kind of take their hands off of the, the controversial stuff. And so, yeah, we, we've suffered so much from that. And then the, the whole corporation business CEO model stuff has also been detrimental as well. And then I would add, too, that there is that model, as I said, the authoritarian, where the pastor says jump and you say how high. And that is very dangerous as well and, and just as unbiblical um, and, and unbaptistic. Yeah, that's exactly right. There has to be this balance between elder rule and, and congregational input. Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah. All right, moving on to our next, um, our next topic here. We're going to now shift from really, well, I, I guess we're not really changing topics, but baptism really does tie into the nature of the church. So it, what about baptism in terms of the nature of church? How does it tie into the church's nature and what we know biblically about the church? Well, if we believe that the church is composed of regenerate members, then that means that baptism must follow, not precede, conversion. Mm-hmm. So as Baptists, we believe that a person must be converted and then they are baptized. That's why we call it believer's baptism, or to use Fred Malone's term, disciples' baptism, the baptism of disciples. Mm-hmm. So we believe that, therefore, that a church, this, this covenant community of the regenerate of believers, that baptism is that way in which we publicly celebrate and identify those who are being a part of this communion. Now, one early 17th century Baptist who wrote on this subject was a man named Henry Danvers. And I think in his work on baptism that Renahan cites gives a really great explanation for what does baptism signify. And Danvers wrote, it is to be a sign of the mysteries of the gospel, to witness repentance, to evidence present regeneration, to represent the covenant on man's part, to be a sign of the covenant on God's part, to represent the union betwixt Christ and believer, and as the means of entrance into the visible church. Now, I think one of the things that we suffer with today in current Calvinistic Baptist circles is we are quick to say what baptism is not. Hmm. We offer more of a negative presentation rather than a positive presentation. And I think that is... It's always bad when your main argument begins with the negative and not the positive. Um, And I think we suffer from that. So I think we need to do a better job of talking about actually what baptism does mean and what baptism does represent. A great book that I would highly encourage everybody to get is Green Pastures, A Primer on the Ordinary Means of Grace by Ryan Davidson. And this is from RPAP. Um, And Ryan Davidson actually pastors in Virginia. And he has a chapter on baptism as a means of grace. We think of the Lord's Supper as a means of grace, but we think of baptism as a means of grace. Mm-hmm. And, and he talks about why is it that? And, and I just wanted to list that, first of all, and it's very similar to what Danvers says there. It is a sign proclaiming union with Christ. 
So baptism is a declaration that this person is in union with Jesus Christ. They are justified in him and adopted in him. We're celebrating that, all right? It is also a sign that preaches new life. I have died with Christ. I have been buried with Christ. I'm buried in the water and I'm raised to walk in the newness of life. All of that symbolizes the miracle of regeneration. So we're celebrating that. We are celebrating that this person has been made a new creature in Christ. Then it's a sign that points to community. Um, and he, and he, you know, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, for as the body is one, has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. So baptism shows us unity that we have in community because of that union with Christ. And this is what I like, and I think we've missed this. It is a sign that gives us assurance. Now you will hear Pato Baptist say, Tell people, remember your baptism. Mm. Well, if they were sprinkled as infants, they can't remember it. I don't know very many <laughs> who had, you know, great memories of when they were 10 days old. Um, but a person who has been baptized as a believer, do we ever go back and think about what that symbolized? I was baptized into the Trinity, baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I've been elected by the Father. I've been redeemed by the Son. I've been regenerated and dwelt and sanctified by the Spirit. So I need to go back to those things. And, and he makes a great, he makes the statement, Davidson does, baptism is something that God has given to us to remind us that we've been buried with Christ and raised to walk in new life. Every time you see a baptism, you indeed offer praise to the Lord for his saving work in the life of others. But you also can remember your baptism as a sign that the Lord has given you to remind you of his covenant of grace and all that means to you. Um, so he talks about, we may not have a date written in our Bible. We may not have a card of our pledge, but we do have our baptism and we can go back and remember what that signified. And that does give us uh, assurance. That is why baptism and the Lord's supper, we say that they are sacraments or that they are the word or the gospel made visible to us that we preach. So that is why, and I, I'll go ahead and just, that's why infant baptism is unbiblical. And there's a lot of reasons we don't have all the time <laughs> to go into all that. But all those things that I just said cannot be said about an infant. Hmm. And there is no New Testament grounds that says that those things can be a reality to the infant because of the belief of one parent and, and so forth. And again, Baptist and this connects their ecclesiology and their covenant theology and their hermeneutic of how they read the Bible. Dispensationalists and pedo baptists create the same error in different forms, an Old Testament primacy. One that sees sharp discontinuity, the other that sees way too much continuity. Baptists said there is continuity and discontinuity. The New Testament serves as the primary is the primacy of the New Testament and in our, in our, what we're doing as a corporate covenant body. And that is why baptism is for a believer. And, and I would just add, that is why the whole understanding of the church and the state is so crucial here. 
I, I love our Presbyterian brethren, respect them much, but many American Presbyterians love to downplay and kind of push, hush, hush, the revisions to the Westminster in 1788 yep. Yep. in America because there's a lot of big differences between it and the 1646 because of politics and civil society. And uh, I like what I think it's um, Matthew Bingham who argues and says, you cannot say that the Westminster Assembly wrote anything in a haphazard way. Uh, agree or disagree, they gave attention and time to what they wrote. Yes, they and did. And they were pretty specific about what they wrote about the civil magistrate and the state church. And so it's not a small difference. And, and that's why I think, uh, I say it tongue-in-cheek, but uh, I do think that Baptists are the thorough reformers and that we <laughs> continue the process of reforming the church to its biblical place. Yeah, and and I think that's a great point about covenant theology, Pastor Jake, that I think that our our view of the church does go back to who its members are, and that goes back to what we how we view covenant theology. Because like our Pado Baptist brethren view covenant theology, you know, it's it's one covenant under two administrations. While well, we would say no, 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 it's a completely different covenant, and the members of that new covenant are only believers, um, as Jeremiah thirty one explicitly teaches. So yeah, I think all of those things have to be tied together in order for us to have a proper understanding of the church, or we're going to have a mixture. You know, we're going to have this mixture of people who think somehow they're safe because they were baptized as an infant, safe in some way. Some may say salvation. Some may say you know they received the benefits of the covenant. However you want to, however you want to look at that. But they have some form of security there because they have a wrong understanding of how God has revealed Himself throughout time and how He has administered the new covenant. I think that's absolutely crucial. We we can't disconnect those baptism, the church, and covenant theology at all. Yes, and I and I would say, you know, two things. That's why in Pascal Denault's book on covenant theology, he makes the point in the very first pages about Baptists before they Baptists asked the question, who or what is the church? They asked who is in the covenant. Mm -hmm. And that's that 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 question is is vital and i would add that part of the reason baptist ecclesiology has suffered so much in the last 100 and 150 years is because we also lost the covenant theology of baptist that mm. totally got diminished and you know people ask you know how did these things get lost you know whether it's covenant theology we're talking about the doctrines of grace and, and i always say i you know i don't have a one answer that I can prove everything definitively historically, but I can say this, I think, and safely say it. I think a lot of those things began to be assumed. And when you assume things, you lose things. And if you don't mm -hmm. keep teaching it and keep preaching it and keep catechizing it and keep confessing it, you know, the next generation is, is kind of what it says there in the book of Exodus. There arose a, a Pharaoh in the land who did not know Joseph. Mm -hmm. He didn't know who he was and didn't know the history. And so if you don't know that, there's a vacuum and something's going to fill yep. the vacuum. And typically it's going to be something new that was not taught previously. Um, right. Yeah. And I, and, I, and I would add this too, and I, and I don't want to keep, keep going too long, um, but <laughs> you, may, you mentioned earlier about Whitfield. And I think that G George Whitfield was used by God, used mightily. Absolutely. One thing that's interesting is that there is a dynamic in Baptist life in Whitfield's time 
It's a little bit different than the 17th century. The reason that men like John Gill and others were very resistant to Whitfield was on ecclesiology. He was a Church of England guy, and they thought mm -hmm. the Church of England was apostate. Um, and so, you know, and in their thinking, how could Whitfield really be any good if he was so wrong on ecclesiology? And I do think the Baptists of that era, a lot of them, did become a little too sectarian. They were right to point out Whitfield's flaws and, you know, just going out in the field and having communion with anybody that came. I would agree with them. But I do think that the 17th century Baptists who penned the Second London Confession show a very healthy model of Baptist Catholicity, of standing, you know, they said in the preface, we weren't trying to create new terms. We didn't want to clog up religion with new words. We're trying to stand in a heritage. But we've also got some really strong biblical convinces and stances that we're not going to apologize for. And, and, and their appendix on baptism, they take the same tone. They wanted to be charitable. They wanted to stand mm -hmm. with other Protestants. They saw themselves in that heritage. But they also weren't going to back down from their Baptist convictions. And I think that that spirit kind of got lost for a variety of reasons in the 1700s. Um, and I see it sometimes now in our own day that we can get a little bit too tribal if we're not careful. We mm. want to be confessional. We need to be proud of our heritage. We need to know it. We need to teach it. But we also need to make clear, just as Spurgeon said when they opened the Metropolitan Tabernacle, he said, I don't shy away from calling myself a Calvinist. I don't hesitate to say that I'm a Baptist, and he pointed to the baptistry there in the tabernacle. But he said, above all, I want it to be known that my, my creed is Christ. Hmm. Christ. And I think that needs to always, we need a Christ-centered confessionalism and a Christ-centered Baptist identity. Yeah. And we and can I, do that oh, sorry. with our ecclesiology. No, we can do that with our ecclesiology. We make hmm. no apologies for being Baptist. Yeah. We are Baptist for a reason. But we don't have to be... You know, I think about it, I think it was Mike Huckabee years ago who said, I'm a conservative, but I'm not angry about it. Well, I think we can be Calvinistic Baptists <laughs> and not be angry about it, and we would do as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, to your point about um, having this unity among those who differ with us, I think there is a tendency, especially with Reformed Baptists and Presbyterians today, to have this kind of passive-aggressive attitude, especially on the issue of baptism, um, you know, where you're making memes and poking at other brethren and and it's clearly meant to be fun but there's also an element of truth to it i think and we need to be careful about that i think there's i think there's place to to poke fun at times in a in a charitable way but we have to be careful and remember that those who came before us the writers of our confession did not take that attitude they believed that presbyterians were brothers they wanted to show that they were in union with them on the core issues, mm -hmm. the orthodox biblical issues of the gospel, of, um, of Christ's death, things like that. Um, but they, they did want to be clear on where they stood, but wanted to do so in a way that was charitable and was not showing that they were disassociating themselves from those brother. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think we made it through all of our topics today. Um, it was a very good discussion. Pastor Jake, we really yes. appreciate you being on today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Glad to be on with you guys and appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you, brother. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Um, all right. Well, that is all we have for today. Um, 
join us next week. Lord willing, we'll be having another episode next Saturday. Um, this is our last episode through the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, we were selective in our topics. We weren't going um, through every single chapter, but uh, today will be our last day, and we'll be starting some new topics next week, Lord willing. Um, so stay with us then. Um, until then, have a great weekend. Uh, Pastor Jake, have a great Lord's Day tomorrow, and uh, we'll talk to you Thank soon. you. Have a Thank good one. You.